Chapter One of Canoeing the Mountains by Todd Bolsinger is titled "Seminary Didn't Prepare Me for This," and if I remember correctly, there's an exclamation point at the end of that,、uh, and that is a great opening title for this book because that's exactly how thousands, you know, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of pastors feel. You know, when I was in seminary, the kinds of things that we learned were how to study and exegete scriptures. We learned to read Hebrew and Greek. We learned systematic theology. We learned how to provide pastoral care for church members, and these are all good and really important things to learn. But what we didn't learn was how to lead a church in a world in which Christianity is no longer at the center of culture. Now, Todd Bolsinger's book *Canoeing the Mountains* does an incredible job of helping church leaders understand, first of all, what's going on that makes church ministry so much more challenging today,、uh, more challenging even than 20 years ago. And *Canoeing the Mountains* helps church leaders begin to think about how to address those particular challenges. In today's interview, Todd unpacks the canoeing the mountains metaphor, and he talks about the way that he personally has had to struggle with enormous change at Fuller Seminary, where he serves as vice president. I'm Marcus Watson, and this is episode 16 of Spiritual Life and Leadership. I'm here with、uh, Todd Bolsinger, who is the vice president and chief of leadership formation at Fuller Seminary. Hi, Todd. Hello, Marcus. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Thank Good. And、uh, yeah, and I'm really excited to talk with、uh, Todd today.、Uh, I've known Todd. Gosh, I don't know how many years now—four,、uh, eight years, nine years, something like that.、Um, it's hard to believe. Um, but uh, uh, Todd has been.、Um, Just a really great person in my life over the years, kind of mentored me through some、uh, good times and tough times, and I'm really grateful for Todd. And、um, Todd is also the author of a book called "Canoeing the Mountains," which we're going to talk about uh, in this uh, episode. And、uh, let me say this, Todd. I'm going to have you talk in a second, but let me just say this about the book: <laughs>、um, uh, when I when I read the book. Uh, came out, I think, 2016, so two, three years ago, something like that. Right. Yeah.、Um, and、uh, you know, I read it because my friend Todd had written it, and、uh, I've read other books that other friends of mine have read, and I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, oh, it's a nice book. But as I read it, I thought, oh my gosh, this is really good. Like, even if Todd wasn't my friend, this is the kind of book I was would recommend to everybody I knew. And、uh, so, anyway, so I'm、uh, really excited to talk about. Uh, canoeing the mountains, and、um, yeah, and just the things that、uh, that we can learn from that. Okay, so I'm done talking now、um, for the moment.、Uh, Todd, why don't you introduce yourself to us briefly? Well, yep, as you said, I am.、Um, I'm at Fuller Seminary, one of the administrators and one of the leadership professors there, and I、um, also teach some practical theology courses. I do a lot of speaking and do.、Um, A lot of working with churches and with leaders who are in who are being formed to lead transitionally change. So it's, that's where I spend a most bulk of my time.、Um, so live in Pasadena with my wife Beth, and we got two adult children who are scattered across the country, and、uh, we have a group text that we keep connected through. Oh, nice, nice. And、uh, you've also been a pastor, and so you understand what it's like to 
lead churches. Yeah, yeah. So 27 years, so 10 years in a, on a staff position, both as a director and as, as associate pastor, and then 17 years as a senior pastor of a, of a church in Orange County. So uh, let me ask you a few kind of quick questions, rapid fire questions, just to get to know you a little bit. Um, so uh, these are fun questions. Uh, first of all, what job would you, Todd, be terrible at? Anything having to do with math. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I get it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, and when uh, do you feel truly alive? Uh, most alive is when I am eating a great meal with my family outdoors. Mm, that's nice. That's cool. Uh, what would a mirror opposite of yourself be like? Uh, I think a mirror opposite of me would be a um, small beardless woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. No one's ever come up with the exact physical opposite, but that's fantastic. Um, all right. And uh, if your life uh, was a book, what do you think its title would be? Mm-hmm. I would say Adventures in learning. Um, yeah. Adventures in learning. That would be it. Mm, Just kind of always learning something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, what's, uh, what would the title of the current chapter of your life be? Uh, it's from a quote from Mark Twain. Don't let schooling get in the way of your education. Oh, say more about that. What does that mean? Well, I spent a lot of my time. I'm, I'm a professor and I spent a lot of my time in books and in education and spent a lot of my time in education. And what I'm learning is there's a lot more to learning than just schooling. I mean, I'm, mm. big, I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of school, but there's a big fan. But today in a rapidly changing world, we've got to be lifetime learners in almost every arena of our lives. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that's good. That's good. All right. So um, let's jump into uh, canoeing the mountains. Um, so the actually the very first time I heard you talk about this was probably about 10 years ago before we had really met and started getting to know each other, but you came down to San Diego Presbytery, uh, where I'm a pastor, and uh, um, you spoke at a little lunch gathering that we had about this metaphor, canoeing the mountains. I don't know if you use that those exact words in as you described the metaphor, but can you just kind of unpack that metaphor of canoeing the mountains? Yeah, so it's a, it's a based on the experience of the Corps of Discovery, Lewis and Clark's Corps of Discovery, who were trying to find a water route that would connect the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean. And it was a water route that everybody assumed was there. And so they went upstream for 18 months up the Missouri River, spent the winter with the Mandan tribe in North Dakota, got to a place where they believed they would step over a little pass and then they would catch um, the Columbia River on the other side of the pass that after having traveled 18 months upstream, they would now get to go downstream. They would float all the way to the Pacific Ocean. They will have discovered uh, the Northwest Passage that people have been looking for for over 300 years. And they would become famous, not only famous explorers, but it would actually be really central to the young United States of America because anybody who controlled the water routes was going to be um, a wealthier nation. That's why everybody in Europe was looking for uh, a sea route to Asia. They've been looking for it for the better part of 300 years because when Columbus, you know, discovered like, like nobody was there. Right. But when this, right. when he was the first European to, to, to find his way and to what is now America, mostly they just wanted to get through the darn thing because they were more interested in trying to find a water route than anything. So now they've Lewis, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, um, lead the Corps of Discovery. Meriwether Lewis goes up to the top of the Lemhi Pass looking for a stream on the other side and finds the Rocky Mountains. Mm. And the 
the reality of that story is, I think, very much where the church is today. We've assumed that everything in front of us will be exactly like it was behind us, that if we're really, really good at canoeing, we're going to just keep paddling and we'll be fine. And what we've found is that the world has changed, that there's a dramatic change in terrain. And that for me, for me particularly, I think the most, there's lots of ways to think about that change, but perhaps the most dramatic way for particularly for the church in the West is that we, uh, the canoeing, the rivers bef- behind us that we were good at navigating was Christendom, where, mm, yeah. um, where Christianity had a home court advantage, where Christianity had power and privilege and Christianity, um, was, was supported, not that everybody was Christians, but that Christianity was supported by culture. And, um, and then today we find ourselves in a place where we live in a much more pluralistic society and Christianity doesn't have that home court advantage. And so we're like a bunch of canoers who've run out of water. And so it doesn't do you any good just to paddle harder. You've actually got to figure out how to drop the canoes, which feels like loss and how to, how to learn to navigate terrain where you're actually in a world that you're not, um, you're not prepared for it. You haven't been trained for it. You're not prepared for it. And to be honest, you're not the expert in it either. There are people who live there who are experts. Mm. If we can learn to live, to listen to those folks and listen to folks who did not have power and privilege in Christendom, we can find good partners ready to help us. But, um, but for most of us, what we do is we just keep either going back and um, telling great stories about the glory days of canoeing, or we get stuck on the mountain and complain that those, that there's mountains in front of us and don't know what to do, or we, um, or we just give up. And so it, this is kind of a, quintessential leadership moment that requires us to learn to lead all over again. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, like, how did you, like, how did you come up with this metaphor? Were you reading a book about Lewis and Clark and one day you're like, oh, wow, this is like what I'm going through at my church or what, what, what was that like? How, where did that come from for you? So two things. One is I was, I was introduced to the work of Ronald Heifetz and Marty Linsky who talk about adaptive leadership. And, and really what they talk about is a kind of leadership that is uh, how does a healthy living organism adapt to a changing environment? That, that's the question mm-hmm. that they were looking at and, and how there's a different kind of model for leadership that, that is different than just say best practices or trying harder or being disciplined, but there's a different way of thinking about the reframe necessary um, to be able to keep going, to keep leading um, when the environment has changed dramatically. And in the middle of that, I actually watched uh, Ken Burns' documentary on Lewis and Clark, and I and I blurted out, "It's like that. It's like what they discovered in this moment." I mean, uh-huh. like, so like one of my favorite stories about Lewis and Clark is that the Mandan tribe, who were very familiar with the area, had told them there were mountains. Hey, you're going to yeah. find a river on the other side, but there's mountains. The problem hmm. is, is they were just you know arrogant folks from the east. They were folks who said, "Oh, well, we're really great at mountains." Well, what hmm. they meant was the rounded hills of the Shenandoah mountains. Right. They had no mental model for the Rocky mountains. Yeah. Yeah. 14,000 foot peaks and 300 miles of, of snow. Like they just, they just, and, and what they had to figure out was if you, if everybody came on this journey because they were experts at river rafting and now there's no water, do you give up or do you have to learn to lead differently? And so the connection between adaptive leadership and this metaphor just became a, a way of thinking about the kind of challenges in front of us. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is um, personally as leaders or even just as people in churches or organizations in general, like what are the kinds of qualities that we need to adopt in order to be able to lead in 
mountainous times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, and when I think about Lewis and Clark, um, you know, I think about, uh, I mean, there was a, there was a lot of loss. There was, uh, courage, but what, what I'm, when I think about the kind of courage they had, and maybe it's, this is what courage always is, but there was a lot of fear, I imagine too, fear of the unknown. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was letting go of some things and, uh, um, imagining, some possible futures. Uh, I, I, maybe, uh, can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. personally, like what kinds of qualities might they have had? I don't know how much yeah. studied their personalities, but, um, but what did they have to do that could apply then to us uh, today in our context? Yeah. So actually this is where I'm spending a bunch of my time doing research today, which is what are the character qualities that enable people to lead adaptive change, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so, so a couple things that come out really clearly and you should see this in Lewis and Clark's life, but you also see this interestingly enough, like in say spiritual formation literature about the, mm-hmm. even in the scriptures about the kind of qualities that people who are in leadership need to have. And you see it in leadership development liter- literature too. So, so, you know, I, I would say there's, you know, kind of three quick places of overlap. One Mm. is you have to have a really clear sense of identity, um, almost Mm. like a vocation, a sense of identity. So I, I think of this identity as a Christian as my deep identity in Christ enables me to lead because I know that I'm called by God to do, to follow Jesus into this, into God's own mission in the world. And that that identity is stronger for me than the circumstances around me. And one of the parts about for the, for Lewis and Clark was they had this really clear identity that they were, that they were on this discovery. And for them, the discovery was more than discovering a water route. That, that's why they were sent. Right. But for them, it was anchored in their deepest values. And, and, and they, you know, they weren't Christians, but Meriwether Lewis was an enlightenment person. He'd been tutored by Thomas Jefferson. And what he, his deepest belief was that the growth of human knowledge would lead to the growth of human happiness. So for him, he was just dedicated to being a learner, like learning everything he could. So when he gets to the Lemhi Pass, to be honest, he never talks about it being fearful. Instead, he hmm. says, we proceeded on. Like we just, hmm. we just kept going. Now, hmm. some of the men, they weren't very happy about this. <laughs> one, one guy said, those were the most horrible mountains we ever beheld. And I think wow. it's because he thought he'd have to carry the canoes over them, right? He was an enlisted hmm. man. So, so this notion of identity and, and in cer- certain language, this comes up as differentiated identity. Your, okay. your capacity to have a strong sense of self that's not rooted in the anxiety of the group, but is able to stay connected to the group. So, hmm. You know, for pastors leading through change, you have to have a sense. I'm called here to lead these people. I love these people. I care for these people. I'm called to these people, but I'm not just here to make them happy. I'm here to actually accomplish what God wants to accomplish in their lives. So that sense of identity is really important. Um, yeah. Uh, as you were talking about um, Lewis and Clark, it's, you know, their identity perhaps wasn't as canoers. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, it was explorers. bigger than that. Yeah. yeah. It was, di- yeah. it was, it was explorers and, 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 dis- and discoverers and, mm-hmm. and for them, and even, you know, interestingly enough, they get criticized a lot and there's good reason to get criti- criticized about the whole colonialism. Well, Lewis and Clark went in and they treated the, the native peoples that they met better than anybody who came after them because they went in with a sense of humility. And actually that's the mm-hmm. second quality They're most, mm-hmm. the most powerful part of that whole story was to me was when they stepped over the Lemhi pass, they had an expert in their midst. It just wasn't them. 
they had a Sacagawea, a Native American teenage nursing mother who was actually, this was, had, this was her homeland. She, when they stepped over the Lemhi Pass, they were now in Shoshone territory. She was Shoshone, even though she had been kidnapped and taken over the mountains to the, to the, where the Hadatsas and the Mandan tribe were. She had been sold into slavery and literally had been like one in a card game by the French trapper Charbonneau. But when they hired Charbonneau and they brought her along as a translator, they stepped over the Lemhi Pass. They had to learn from her. She yeah. was the expert. Yeah, now, I yeah. think this is one of the most powerful moments for those of us who were trained in Christendom, who've been in kind of yeah. dominant mainline or evangelical churches, is there's all kinds of people who were not Christendom people. They didn't have power or privilege. They didn't grow up in the church. They, they, they're not trying to uphold the institutions. They're all around us. And these are actually the voices we have to learn from and partner with. And so yeah. Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea now become a, tr a trio of people who lead the core of discovery. And that, mm. that, so, so identity and humility go together. And the third one really is resilience. Uh, the scriptures talk about it as perseverance or hupamone. And, um, but resilience, the capacity to be persistent in the face of resistance and the resistance that will come even internally from the organization. Yeah. And so those mm. qualities we see, you know, they're of capacity to proceed on, to keep going, to keep learning. I mean, that's just part of who they were. Yeah. Um, and that's so different from what most people in our churches, I think, uh, think will, will fix things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm used to hearing things like, boy, if only we could get back to having a hundred kids in Sunday school, like we did in the sixties, you know, or, uh, if we buy a new organ, that'll fix things. Or if we have better contemporary music, right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the hard part is in almost any community, there's probably some congregation that because it's clear to who they are, they're doing fine, right? They're just mm -hmm. doing fine. They're either an old traditional one with lots of money or a brand new upstart one with, mm -hmm. you know, a cool name and a cool band or something. The hard part, though, is if you're in a congregation that is trying to be faithful to change, like, you know, you've you you were a Christendom congregation and now you need to become like a missional congregation. Yeah. It doesn't do you any good to copy anybody else. Yeah. You have to discover your own, you know, adaptive identity that comes out of your own core values. And it's like, yeah. it's like trying to fix your marriage by looking at somebody else's marriage. You, you have to do your own yeah. work. And, right. and that's the hard part. And that's why it that's takes, fun. you know, a sense of identity and humility and resilience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, this, uh, I mean, there's a huge, clearly a huge cultural shift that's taken place the the move from christendom a christendom culture to a, a culture in which christianity is not at the center of power but then also all kinds of other uh, uh changes i actually had a real brief conversation with mark laberton uh when i was up at fuller some time ago and i said yeah you know everything's changing and he said uh, yeah and and not just for christianity it's it's everywhere um you know um all kinds of organizations are having to shift and adapt, right? Um, you don't have bookstores anymore, except for maybe Barnes and Noble, right? Because Amazon sells all the books now and uh, TV stations have to compete with Netflix, right? Everything is different. And um, that includes seminaries. And so I thought maybe we could talk about the kinds of uh, canoeing. No, no, uh, mountain climbing <laughs> that Fuller is having to do, even though 
you know, you, yeah. seminaries have been used to canoeing. Can you share a little bit about yeah. about that and how you guys are having to work through that? Yeah. So, so like most, I mean, so um, somebody told me that um, in, if you added up all the seminaries in the country and you add up their total enrollment, there are 10,000 less seminary students today than there were 10 years mm. ago. So, mm. and Fuller, for Fuller, that's a thousand of those 10,000. I mean, we have a thousand less. We're still one of the larger seminaries in the world, but still a thousand less students. Well, why? Because it, what used to draw the, create the pipeline of students to seminary were mainline denominations like Presbyterians like us who required an MDiv to be a pastor. Mm-hmm. Most of those denominations are all in decline. And where you're seeing some of the sparks of interest and in new things happening in the church are happening in places where you've got people acting very entrepreneurial without the same level of, of education who need theological education and spiritual formation and leadership development, but they're not willing to go into, you know, $60,000 worth of debt and spend three years, you know, uprooting their family and their lives to, to come and live on a campus. And so, What's happening is you have a radical shift beginning to happen in a place like Fuller, where we're both deeply committed to our graduate education. I mean, we still we're, we're committed to scholarship because that's who we are. That's part of our identity. We're right. we're not going to be something that we're not. But we're also always been committed to the mission of God in the world in very innovative ways. And so right now we're working on developing an entire new thing we call the Fuller Leadership Platform, which is basically uh, using taking the research and the scholarship and the teaching of Fuller and making it available to people, whether they need degrees or not, in a digital f- platform that will enable folks to be able to access learning get professional certificates, do ongoing formation at a scale and at a price point that allows them to be lifetime learners rather than people who disrupt their lives for a brief period of time to do a degree. And that shift is pretty dramatic. And, um, and, and what's interesting is, you know, I just told you that shift. And if you've got anybody who's connected to Fuller, they would say, wait a minute, I thought he was going to talk about the fact that Fuller's moving its campus. Yeah. And we are, we're moving, we're selling our campus in, Pasadena and we're moving to Pomona because what we really recognized is our biggest resource, our, our endowment, if you will, is in our dirt. Hmm. And we got to, and in a day when, when geophysical campuses still are important, but not as important as they used to be. Well, we're selling our campus, pulling our money out of our dirt and rebuilding a more a campus more built for a world where people are going to be doing hybrid education and online education and residential in a more you know smaller scale and basically put more investments into more global theological education around the world so so it's a it's a rapid shift both physically literally disruptive we're going to move 30 miles and rebuild a campus but we're also changing our entire um educational model at the same time right and and how hard is that <laughs> it's got to be really, really, hard. really yeah. hard yeah yeah yeah, yeah. There's, there's times people say to me you must be really discouraged by all this it's so hard and i said well i'm not because i came here to do that like our that's what fuller is about and that's what it's still hard but it's a little bit like um you know the difference is i would say if you use the canoe in the mountains thing is that I, because I was a pastor, I'd, I'd already peeked over the mountains. I'd seen mountains were there. So I felt like I came back and said to a bunch of canoers, let's prepare. 
and let's start, you know, let's start getting out and walking and let's start carrying our canoes and let's start getting, starting to get uh, brush up on our Shoshone and let's get ready for having a different kind of thing. And I'm excited about the challenge, but, but, you know, we obviously have folks who were experts in the water and they're just kind of wondering if we can just find another river. Right, right. So, and so who, who are the experts, the Sacagawea kind of experts that you guys have been listening to that have helped you make this transition? Well, one of them, to be honest, is people who have, are, who have been in global education for a long time, including even at Fuller. So like Fuller had the very first, our MA, our master's in global leadership was one of the earliest hybrid degrees where you do part of it online and part of it face to face. And we learned, we've done that one for well over a decade, 15 years, I think. And we've learned a lot from that. So we took that learning and we started now applying it more broadly in the organization. And we also started realizing that um, we have a lot of folks in our midst from all over the world who have been talking about how the church experience is really different than being in the Presbyterian church in the United States. So mm-hmm. how do we invite into our midst people of color, people from gl- the global world, people from the immigrant church? How do we think about the global church as the future of the church and not just trying to, you know, uh, re-engineer or uh, uh, renew the mainline denominations? And so it's been it's been a combination of these kinds of conversations that we're having. So, yeah, yeah. Um, As a a Fuller alum and uh, someone who loves Fuller. I've got two degrees from Fuller. Uh, and, and I love going back to Fuller. So I uh, just sharing kind of personally, you know, when I heard that Fuller was moving its campus, I was, there was this incredible sense of loss. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think you, you said it in, in canoeing the mountains and maybe Heifetz and Linsky said it too, but I think people, you know, it's not that people resist change, because I resisted this idea of moving the campus, but what I was, re- uh, what it was, was loss. Yeah, I was absolutely. resisting loss. Oh, I, right? I had the same thing. Actually, when I, when I got here, we didn't have any conversation about moving the campus. It was all about, uh, you know, changing the way we do ministry and the way we do education. All of a sudden I'm in the middle of a conversation. Where we're saying, Hey, in order for us to be able to make the changes that you Todd and others are really excited about, we're going to have to sell our campus. And I literally was like, no, I don't want and then. So I, I would list a true story. I was in a senior staff meeting and I, and I said, how much money would we have to raise in order for us to save the campus? And what our development person said, 200 to 300 million. And I looked around and I went, I think we could do that. And one of my colleagues, I'll never forget this. He looked me in the eye and he said, okay, Todd, maybe we could, but here's a question I want to ask you. If God gave us 200 million, do you think we should say to God and we saved our campus? Mm. Like, like, yeah. should we invest $200 million in something that would allow us to literally serve people who now can't even have seminary within their reach? And like, right then I went, oh yeah, that's the canoe I got to drop. That's right. the thing I got to be willing to say. It's for this greater mission I'm willing to go through this loss. And so, right. yeah, I, I'm, right. I'm part of that. So in in light of that, so then thinking about pastors leading change in their churches or, or leaders in churches, you know, elders and all those who are trying to lead change. Like, what would you say to them in light of what people are resisting or how would you encourage them or advise them? Well, two things. One is when, you know, yes, people don't resist change. They resist loss. That's a critical point. So to, as a pastor, then think about, Hey, you know how to help people deal with loss. 
Like most pastors mm. I know are the very best person in their community. Mm. They have had more experience helping people deal with loss than anybody. Losses of marriages or death mm. or jobs. So you know what to do. So go be with those people in their loss. Empathize, care for them, be with them. Now, someone will say to me, yeah, but when you're the pastor leading the change, they're, they go through the stages of grief like anger and they're mad at you. Mm. Yeah. So then, again, you need a clear sense of identity. You need a sense, like, they may be mad at me, but what I need to do is still stay connected to my calling, which is to pastor them through their loss, right? right? Not to take it personally, be there, don't, to manage my own reactivity. And then, and part of what I need to be able to do is to, you know, I always say you have to manage your reactivity, you have to reframe the vision, and you've got to learn how to lead people relationally. Like, how do we go together in this new vision, you know, so Lewis and Clark had to say to their people, Hey, look, there's no water route. We're not going to discover a water route, but we are going to be part of discovering a whole new world, including a whole bunch of people here who we don't even have never even met. And let's go, like, let's proceed on. And that, I think there's, that's what we have to do. We've got to help them manage the loss and re reframe the vision back to our core, deepest core values that are inspiring to us. And then lead people together relationally as a community that goes through it yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and I think going through that as as leaders uh, can also be a very formative process for us as well. I think what what are those three qualities you mentioned? The second two were humility and re- resilience, and yeah. then yeah. there was the first. One. Yeah, identity, humility, yeah. and identity, resilience. humility, and resilience. Yeah. yeah. So let me ask just one more question uh, before we finish. Um, so having, uh, well, studied this for a long time, but then also having to sort of live through a mountainous time at, at Fuller Seminary and processing all these changes and leading change, how has that affect you, affected you personally, kind of your own discipleship? Have you, how's God shaped you through that? Well, I mean, part of what I was just revealing to you was my own process, right? Part of what mm-hmm. I had to have a clear sense was, you know, I had to, how do I, in both the congregations that I led and the processes I led with other churches, even in my own community fuller, you know, um, I had to own the sense that my identity has to be rooted in, in my calling. Like I have a deep sense of vocation to, this is mine to do. And that I have to be continually be open to learning, being humble, being open to correction. I mean, you make a lot of mistakes. You're never going to be perfect. You say the wrong things. You, you're not empathic when you need to be. All those things, I've done them all. And, and so I've needed that. And that really what I've needed to figure, to, to develop is a kind of resilience that is, that is mm. not stubborn, but is actually, um, but is filled, that is, has conviction. So one of my favorite quotes that Mar- from Martin Luther King Jr. that comes out of the I Have a Dream speech, it's a, it's a part of the speech that almost people don't pay as much attention to because it's out of Isaiah 40, is he says, he talks about Isaiah 40 and this picture of the future of justice in the world. And he says, with this faith, I will go back to the South. With this faith, we will hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. And I often think that's what we're doing. We are taking the despair that is in front of us that we feel when we're going through pain. And like we become like chisels that turn those into stones, like the living stones of first Peter two that become a dwelling place for God. Like we're going to bring stones of hope and that we have to be the tool that God can use to hew out of that mountain of despair, stones of hope. Wow. That's great. That's great. Well, why don't we, 
end it there. And uh, this was just good, good stuff. Thank you so much, um, Todd. Thanks for uh, sharing with us today. And thank you for um, everything that you're doing at Fuller Seminary and, and being adaptive <laughs> in a way that is, is good for the, the whole world, you know, as, uh, you know, preparing people where they are in ways that work for them so that they can be the people that they're called to be. Um, so thanks for, for that and setting a, an example for uh, the rest of us um, as we kind of navigate these mountains too. Great. Yeah. Thanks. And uh, we'll talk again sometime. Okay. Good. You're welcome. Good to be with you. Well, like Lewis and Clark, we who are in ministry uh, definitely find ourselves in uncharted territory. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but if you are, then you know that it is really hard. Uh, I will admit that more than once I have thought to myself, man, it would be so much easier if I could have been a pastor back in the 60s. (laughs) Uh, And then I think to myself about Gandalf and Frodo, believe it or not. Well, sometimes. Uh, And here's where my inner geek comes out. There's a scene where Frodo says to Gandalf that he wishes that the ring hadn't come to him, right? And that all of this stuff about the one ring hadn't happened in his time. And that's when Gandalf responds, So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Right, And the time that we've been given happens to be a time of great change, a time when it is really challenging to lead a church. Uh, and uh, to lead many kinds of organizations. And so it's no use wishing that the world were different, right? This is the world that we have. All we can do is decide what to do with the time that we've been given. And that's why I'm so grateful for people like Todd Bolsinger, who are helping ministry leaders navigate these these mountainous times. Well, if you want to connect with Todd, uh, you can email him at toddbowl at icloud.com. That's T-O-D-B-O-L at iCloud.com. Uh, you can check out his website, bolsinger.blogs.com. And uh, you can also follow him on Twitter. Uh, it's at Todd Bowl, so at T-O-D-B-O-L. And if you would like to connect with me, you can email me, marcus at marcuswatson.com. Again, Marcus with a K, Marcus with a K. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at Marcus Watson. And I would be so grateful if you would leave a review on iTunes. Uh, A positive five-star review would be fantastic, but an honest review would be greatly appreciated. Well, thanks so much for being here again, and uh, I will see you next time here on Spiritual Life and Leadership.